Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thursday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed, we do. Lots of interesting news breaking this morning. First of all, we've got some new news about Americans and the amount of credit card debt that they hold. Um, the numbers are pretty stunning, so we'll break all of that down for you. We also have uh, additional information about Senator Dianne Feinstein apparently suffering a fall. We'll break that down for you, what it means for a very important, powerful person here in Washington. Uh, there was an FBI raid yesterday. We know very little about it, but a man who had been and uh, apparently making threats against Joe Biden was killed in that raid. So we'll break that down for you. We also have some new news with regard to Trump. Uh, apparently his Twitter account was subpoenaed by Jack Smith. And also he is making some comments about whether or not he will participate in the debate that is coming up and uh, and just exactly what that decision will look like. Also excited about a guest we're going to have in studio. This is going to be a big one. Ken Klippenstein has published a report on UFO whistleblower Dave Grush that is getting a lot of pushback and <laughs> backlash. So we thought the best thing to do would be to have Ken in the studio and ask him the questions we have ourselves. But before we get to any of that, um, thank you all so much to those of you who have been signing up uh, to become premium subscribers. And for those of you who are premium subscribers and you are looking to get these shows 
show full video without ads. The best place to do that at this point is on Spotify. Yes, that's right. We sent out an uh, email to everybody of yesterday about connecting your video feed to Spotify just to make it all crystal clear. Uh, see what I did there? <laughs> uh, make sure you guys continue to sign up because I know a lot of you have been enjoying it. It's always awesome, of course, in order to get the feedback and just uh, you guys are helping us build this place. It, it really is just so incredible. We've got really, really fun guests. I think next week we're going to be able to debut Crystal, oh, yeah. uh, which are certainly <laughs> a testament uh, to what you guys have helped us build here and you should continue to pay attention. Uh, I think you are definitely going to want to hear these. As a reminder, all of our big interviews that we get, candidates and big per uh, personalities, etc., cetera, uh, they drop first for our premium subs. They're always the people that we think about. Uh, first, of course, you know, we don't uh, neglect our YouTube audience as well. They just get it a little bit later uh, whenever uh, we get to it because the people who help pay us pay our bills, help us build everything, uh, those are the people we're always thinking about here. So we just want to thank you again. All right, guys, so we have been really trying to dig into the state of the economy, which is a little bit complicated, the way the Biden administration portrays it, certainly not the way that Americans are experiencing it. And we have a new uh, milestone, uh, not a good milestone, that we have just reached. Let's put this up on the screen. So American credit card debt has officially hit $1 trillion for the first time ever per CNBC. This is a huge test for cardholders, which is coming. You can see credit card balances here, um, you know, going up up until 2020. And then because of some of the pandemic relief era programs, some of that debt getting paid down. Well, now it has come back uh, with a vengeance, topping that $1 trillion number. They said total credit card debt rose nearly 5% or about $45 billion in the second quarter to a new high. That is according to a new report on household debt from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Delinquency rates still continue to be relatively low by historical standards. However, there are concerns that those rising balances may present challenges. And reminder to everyone that student loan payments are starting this fall. Now, the Biden administration has announced a few plans, an income-driven repayment plan. Um, Biden's still trying to cancel student debt, some other relief measures for borrowers, including a 12-month on-ramp to repayment to try to soften that blow. But nevertheless, the fact that you have these historic rates of credit card debt and you have student loan payments coming back into effect this fall could be a very dangerous state of affairs for a lot of Americans. Let's go ahead and put the numbers up on the screen from the New York Fed. Um, they put up this helpful GIF on uh, Twitter or X or whatever the hell it is now um, showing the levels of debt. I mean, you can see that that red uh, that red swath there, yeah. that is student loan debt, 1.57 trillion. I mean, that is truly astonishing. You can see the credit card debt there, that's the orange rising to a trillion dollars. Auto loan debt, 1.58 trillion and other at 0.53 trillion. So uh, Americans really increasingly loaded up with debt and needing their credit cards just to be able to make ends meet. It's a huge problem. One of the things that they point to in the New York Federal Reserve report, they say, quote, compared to other debt categories this quarter, credit card balances saw the most pronounced worsening in performance following a period of extraordinary low delinquency rates during the pandemic. Now, the other problem, though, is that while credit card debt is the most pronounced, they still say auto loans rose by $20 billion in upward trajectory. The volume of newly originated auto loans and leases was $179 billion, reflecting the high dollar value of originated loans, aka cars cost way too much money right now, and uh, people have to take out huge loans if they want to be able 
able to even get a car. Mortgage balances actually are unchanged from the previous quarter, but not because uh, of not for a good reason, like people are paying it down, but because people are just taking out way fewer mortgages and because they're slowing home prices. Because no one's buying a house. It's too, <laughs> so basically, debt on almost every measure right now is is disaster. I mean, the credit card debt increase combined also with you know we are going to have student loan repayments come any what is it any month now mm -hmm. uh, that they start to kick in that's a couple hundred dollars a month even more so that people are some what 20 something million americans maybe even more are going to have to start having to pay down once again reducing their overall household expenses then they've got uh they've got what's going on in terms of inflation wages not keeping up with that or very slightly keeping up with it as of like i think this quarter and so what do you do you go with the credit card and you know the sad part is not just the balances people are opening a ton of new credit cards. I mean, they say here that the number of accounts has expanded by just six, by six million, just in the last quarter, Crystal, six million new credit cards taken out to a current number of 578.35 million credit cards. The aggregate limits on these cards have actually increased by 9 billion and now stand at 4.6 trillion. So people increasing their credit limits, taking out new cards, basically to try and load up, you know, if they're not able to get what they can off of a single one. And, you know, I don't think it takes a genius financial advisor to figure out. It's like it most people, whenever they do go into credit card debt, it's not, you know, one or two months. We're talking about years of their life before any of this stuff even begins to get paid down, if yeah. it does at all. And we have some statistics about exactly that. Let's put this up on the screen. This is from Yahoo News. They compiled some of the statistics about what they describe as the state of debt in America. Let's put this next piece up on the screen. So you've got 30% um, of Americans who have between $1,000 and $5,000 in credit card debt. 15% have $5,000 or more in credit card debt. And about 6% have more than $10,000 in credit card debt. Let's put this next piece up on the screen that breaks those numbers down further. They say, although 6% could seem like a small amount, that means that based on these survey results, 14 million Americans have over $10,000 of credit card debt. They go on to find that 33% of Americans, so a third of Americans, think it will take more than two years to pay off their credit card debt. Um, a majority of people, 55%, carry a credit card balance from month to month. 15% have had credit card debt stretching back decades to before 2006. And in to me, the most disturbing uh, indicator here, they say 49% of Americans, so very close to a majority of Americans, actually depend on credit cards now to cover essential living expenses. Those numbers are even higher for uh, young people, Gen Z, 61% of Zoomers rely on credit cards just to be able to pay their normal living expenses. 53% of millennials, on the other hand, boomers in a very different category, only 20%, 26% of boomers rely on credit cards to cover essential expenses. So, I mean, Sagar, this fits with a lot of what we've been reporting at this point for years mm -hmm. about the financial pressure that is on younger generations, how they struggle so much just to be able to make the milestones that their parents were able to meet so much earlier in life. And you can see here, in an attempt just to you know, obtain the living standard that perhaps their parents had, they're having to take on significant loads of debt. What does that mean? 
that debt load can truly be crushing. I mean, oh, you talk about, is. you think about yeah. freedom and ability to like pursue happiness and make your own choices in the world. If you are saddled with a huge student loan debt burden, if you're saddled with a huge credit card debt burden, that really constrains your choices of what you're able to do in the world. That's why rates of entrepreneurship are down among young Americans. I've seen reports that directly tie that in to the debt loan, specifically the student loan debt load that young Americans are carrying at this point. It is just a totally different landscape from when their parents graduated college and were able to, you know, work a job and pay as they went in terms of their college education because it was so much more affordable. Of course, and this is downstream of everything. And this is the housing conversation, this is the debt conversation, this is the entrepreneurship conversation. You know, this is uh, why a lot of my friends who uh, go to, you know, they go to the so-called good colleges, what do they do? They don't want to start a business. They want to go work in the Fortune 500. They want to go make 200 grand a year, uh, which is great money because they've got 200 grand in debt. They got no choice. They got nothing else to do. And you know, I'll talk, these people, I love them, but they're so miserable. They cannot do anything else. They feel chained basically to the desk and have to work 70 hours a week. And they're like, yeah, but you know, seven years from now, I'll be debt free. And then maybe I can start to look at a house. And then what's the other problem? You know, you start to get depressed. A lot of them have, you know, substance abuse, frankly. And I think the problem is because, you know, you have to drink away your feelings, you know, in terms of not be, being feeling trapped. And it's not just them because, you know, we shouldn't just weep for law students who are out there. A lot of people who are working class, you know, are in the same boat. If you've got 10 grand in credit card debt at a 30% interest, I mean, the interest payment alone is making up so much of what you're paying. You feel like it's insurmountable. I mean, you have effectively got to cut your lifestyle to the bone if you actually want to make big, fat, hairy interest payments, or sorry, principal payments. And that's just not feasible for a lot of people who are out there. And if, especially if you have kids, the biggest problem I worry about for people who are in this type of debt is what do you do when you're in an emergency? And I think about that all the time with a lot of my friends who are, you know, two fifty, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000, something like that in debt. They're like, it's fine. I'm just going to keep working. I'm like, yeah, but you know, what happens? You get hit by a bus. Now what? It's like, what if you can't go to the office? What if your wife, you know, decide gets sick? Like now what? It's like they're in a position where they have almost no leeway. And that's actually when you truly discover. So yeah, this, I really despair when I look at uh, some of this stuff. And we've even got the car, let's go up this map. Let's put this up there on the screen. This is really troubling. Uh, this shows you that more than one in five shoppers in Texas and Wyoming have a monthly payment over a thousand dollars a month just in the second quarter, largely driven by the purchases of large trucks. But if you t take a look at that, you can actually see the percentage of state residents paying 1K per month. I mean, we're talking about nearly an average of uh, what, 15, 16%, almost 20% in some of these states. That is not an insignificant sum. Of course, we're talking about 12 grand a year post-tax, just spending on your damn car. Um, and you know, it's like when used cars, what is it, the average price of a used car is, um, up over 30%. I know only 30% or so of car used cars are even below $20,000, which sounds insane to say, you know, not even 10 years ago. New car price is some like $55,000. Well, it starts to make sense really whenever you when you take a look at the numbers, but then we know what people are making and we know what they're taking out, and it's very clear that the delta there is just getting bigger every single year, and that's what causes people to break. It can break you emotionally, it can break you mentally, and uh, it leads to some very troubling societal things. Yeah, it just leads to you feeling yeah. Like you have no choice in your life. I mean, and that's sort of like best case scenario. Worst case scenario is it truly is crushing mm -hmm. and you lose everything because you can't keep up with the payments. And when you're talking about people who are accumulating more and more debt, just to be able to meet their living expenses. I mean, what are we doing to our young generations here in terms of what their life is going to look like? So 
dovetails uh, very closely with uh, the Biden administration and their uh, campaign pitch for 2024. They're really trying to sell Bidenomics as a thing and really convince Americans that their actual personal financial situation is a lot better than Americans are telling pollsters that they feel that it is. Interestingly enough, it's a little bit surprising, Karine Jean-Pierre was on CNN and she was actually pressed on uh, the choice of language using mm -hmm. Bidenomics and how they're leaning into this pitch, even though Americans really aren't feeling it. Let's take a listen to that. It's approval rating for his handling of the economy is at 37 percent, 30 percent on inflation specifically. From the White House perspective, why is there disparity between the good story, the narrative you think you have to tell, and how it's received by the American people? So a couple of things, Victor. Look, as we know, polls don't show everything. They don't tell the full story, as you just stated. And we have to remember, if you look at where we were back in the fall of 2022 during the midterm elections, when the president delivered a historic uh, midterms for uh, for Democrats, when we think about how, uh, as a as a Democratic president, he uh, delivered a victory that we hadn't seen in decades, right? And he led that messaging throughout those months going into November. November. And we are in a stronger position now than we were back uh, back then in the fall. And so that is important to note. Look, there's a there's a lot going on in this country, and we understand that you know Americans are coming out of a pandemic. Uh, we are dealing uh, we're dealing with a lot when you think about uh, the economy. But here's the thing: this is a president who has spent the last two years turning the economy around. You hear us talk about Bidenomics. You just mentioned how we're doing this West uh, this kind of this West Coast swing, talking directly uh, to the American people about how wages are actually going up, about how inflation is going down over a long extended period of time, more than a, more than a 12 months. That is important. Let me ask you about something here that the branding, you just used the word, we have it on screen, Bidenomics. Um, yes. We know the polls show that people are pretty sour, at least half American people are sour on the economy. Isn't that just dangerous getting closer to the election if things take a downturn? If, as the CBO predicts, unemployment will get closer to 4.7% by Election Day, that you've got a narrative now of Bidenomics and things going in a certain way, but that can quickly turn in the opposite direction. Why literally fuse the president's name with the, the economics that Americans aren't very happy with? Well, here's the thing. Bidenomics is indeed working when, when we say that you look at the data, right? Look, Cost, cost is going down, right? We think about inflation. When you think about wages going up, that is binomics. Look, the president has always believed, not just as president, but as vice president, as a senator, that we need to build an economy that is building from the bottom up, middle out. That's actually a good question. Why literally fuse his yeah, name like, with economics when what? people are like, I feel like the economy yeah, is absolutely I hate terrible. The economy, so I'm just going to go ahead and tie myself directly to said economy. I don't know, man. I, I really don't understand this one, Crystal. I mean, this is one where it's an active choice to try and to spin it. My only uh, analysis can be that they seem to believe a lot of the stuff that is out there. And I mean, I just think they're fundamentally misreading the electorate. Actually, if, if you go and you look at a lot of the midterm data, people did say that inflation was one of their top choices. It's just that they were willing to forgive it because they were so upset at the GOP about abortion yeah. and they were upset about stop the steal. It's not that they're like, yeah, you're doing a great job. I mean, 
really what you should do, I don't even know what you should call yourself. Like, you should just be like, I'm going to do Roe and that's it. Like, I, that's that's all I'm running on. If I were Biden, that's what I would do. The economy's terrible. I don't have a particularly good foreign policy record to run on. You know, my approval rating is second lowest except for Jimmy Carter at this point. So go against, I've got one popular thing and a super majority on my side for the ballot. It's Roe versus Wade and abortion as evidenced by what's happened in Ohio. That's it. That's my whole election campaign. Yeah. This is a choice. This is like a choice to shoot yourself in the foot. It's just nuts. I mean, and listen, the, the voters are saying thus far that maybe you don't need an affirmative economic vision. The The theory of the case from the Biden people is like the other side is so bad that yeah. they're just going to vote for us anyway. Right. And, you know, we've had a bunch of these special elections. They all have basically gone in the Democrats' favor. They've outperformed by 10 percentage points on average, partisan leaning in each district that basically held in Ohio as well in this um, abortion-related referendum. But to get back to the, the economic piece here, you know, for people to understand how the top line numbers can look one way and the reality for people can look very, very different. So the White House does have numbers that they can point to. You know, unemployment is really low. There have been a lot of jobs created. I mean, of course, that came out of the, the COVID recession. So the expectation was that hopefully there would be a lot of new jobs created. Inflation has cooled over the past several months. And actually, we're, we're set to get some new numbers on inflation uh, today as well. So we'll get to see how things are looking there. But if you look at the story of what has happened over the course of the, the Biden term, you initially had a lot of action on the economy. And that's why when we showed you that chart of people's debt load, it actually went down quite significantly um, during the early years of the, the Biden presidency because there was a lot of action that helped ordinary people. The story of his presidency has been the gradual rolling back of all those protections and supports. Student loan debt coming due again this fall is exactly uh, a, a case in point of exactly that. So the experience that people have had over these past few years is of their financial situation increasingly becoming more and more precarious. And of course, inflation plays into that as well. So that's why you can have some of these top line numbers that are like, oh, yeah, Karine Jean-Pierre can talk about these top line numbers and it sounds really good. But what people are actually living and experiencing is a totally different scenario where every month things are getting a little bit tougher. And Biden has chosen to try to sell what he's already done versus try to lay out an affirmative vision of what he will do. Now, again, I'm not saying that this is going to mean he's going to lose re-election. Um, I think he'd be in a lot better position if he did lay out that affirmative economic vision and there was actually some credibility behind getting it done. But you know, their theory of the case thus far that all they have to say is Trump is bad and, you know, Roe Ro versus Wade and Dobbs, et cetera. So far, that has actually worked out pretty well for them. So it's possible it continues to work out well for them. But uh, that doesn't mean much to Americans who are continuing to struggle. Clearly, the Biden team put this next piece up on the screen, uh, this reporting about how they're thinking about the campaign and what they're going to do to, quote, juice the economic polling. They clearly feel like there is a messaging problem versus a reality problem. What we're trying to lay out for you here is that there is very clearly a reality problem in terms of Americans and their personal financial situation. Their theory of the case is that, no, 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 people are actually doing better than they think. They're just not getting the message out about all the great things that we've done for them. And so the model that they're going back to intentionally or not, based on this reporting from the Washington Examiner, is they want to go back to um, the rollout of the vaccines, the push that they made to try to get people vaccinated. And they're going to use some of the relational organizing and leaning into trusted messengers, quote unquote, within communities or uh, social media influencers to try to persuade the public that actually Bidenomics is good. 
actually, you're doing great. Actually, the economy is really wonderful and uh, you just don't understand. That's their theory of how they're going to pull this off and uh, color me skeptical, Sagar. Yeah, that's going to work. You out. should be skeptical. Basically, kind of what my friend Christian Daytalk lays out there in the report is that they recognize the Bidenomics framing is not exactly a landing, but they're not 100 percent sure what uh, else to do. Like you said, they think it's a messaging issue, but messaging is not the problem. Reality is the problem. And, you know, until they really get that through their heads, they're uh, they're just going to be in the precarious situation that they don't have to be in, where Trump very easily could win again. I think he stands as good a shot as any, honestly. I, I would put it at 50-50 today. And yet, uh, it didn't have to be that way. It's entirely a choice of his own making. And, you know, now uh, it's an affirmative choice to go which said Bidenomics, like I was saying, and if he doesn't ditch it and it doesn't look like it, I think because, Crystal, he genuinely believes in his heart that it's some sort of messaging issue and or that people just don't understand how good they have it. I really think that's what it is. I think his advisors are telling him, look at these fake numbers about how everything is better. Mm. And he's like, yeah, I'm just going to beat these, beat this into the head of people. And that's just not how politics works. you got to meet people where they are. It's that and it's a lack of desire to have to actually promise anything. Yeah, true. And since he's, you know, unwilling to debate his primary competitors, that means there's not any pressure on him to promise anything in terms of actual, like, material benefits the American people. So some of the things that, you know, they've supported in the past, like the child tax credit that was very successful, none of these have been made as anything approaching a concrete pitch for the next term. So, you know, their theory continues to be if we can just unite the anti-Trump coalition and keep it all focused around Donald Trump and, and the fact that, you know, it's going to be a series of trial dates and new indictments and discovery and all of these things that are happening during the, the campaign season, I mean, it's very possible that that theory works out for them. I'm, I'm not saying I'm not saying that it's like doomed to fail, but um, that's cold comfort to people who really could use some help from the federal government, help that, you know, they were starting yep. to get at the beginning of this administration, they've seen pulled out piece by piece um, over the course of the past several years. Mm -hmm. A lot of this actually relates to our next story. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen, which, you know, it's difficult to talk about this. We have to try and keep empathy and also try to think about this in the public realm. Senator Dianne Feinstein yesterday, 90 years old, fell at home and had to go to the hospital. Her office claims, quote, that the scans are clear. She has, quote, briefly went to the hospital yesterday afternoon as a precaution after a minor fall in her home. The Like I said, her office says that she was clear. Senator Schumer said in a statement that he spoke with her on Wednesday morning, she says that she suffered no injuries and briefly went to there. I am, quote, I am glad she's back at home now and she is doing well. But this comes, Crystal, after she missed work for literally months on end. Uh, she was absent when she did return. Let's be honest. I mean, you can see that photo. That's probably a good one uh, compared to what it looks like as she's wheeled around the Capitol. She clearly is suffering several episodes where she forgets where she is. I did the infamous clip uh, that we showed everyone here where they just said, just vote I, as she you know, kind of has like a rambling episode. The thing is, is that whenever it comes to her health and to Senator McConnell, how do we know we're being told the truth? I mean, don't forget, we were, hit, we were hidden from the fact, her office hid, that she had actually suffered an episode on top of what had happened while she was at home during those three months, not just from recuperating, but actually suffering like a pretty serious health event that we didn't learn until reporters had to kind of dig around the people around her. 
we also now have a secondary indication of frankly just how out of it Diane Feinstein is. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen, guys. She has currently ceded the power of attorney to her daughter, okay? She has ceded power of attorney to her daughter in what effectively amounts to like, a, uh, what is it, like an inheritance dispute after yeah. her very rich husband passed away. Basically, the power of attorney is to her 66-year-old daughter, Catherine, Catherine Feinstein, to help handle the legal battles over her late husband, Richard Bloom's estate. Basically, Catherine Feinstein, the only child, is at odds with the other three daughters of a previous uh, marriage over the ownership of luxury beach house owned by Feinstein. If only we were all so lucky, honestly, uh, that to, to be able to feud with our step-siblings over something like this. The point, though, is that she does not have the mental capacity, it seems, to deal or to represent her own financial interest in this case and is willing to turn it over and yet wants to represent some 40 million people, the state of California in the United States Senate. Can we think of two twin news items which should, at the very least, in the eyes of what, 100% of the American public, just be like, you gotta go, I'm yeah. sorry. You know, you can't be here anymore. I mean, I honestly think you did the best commentary yeah. that I've seen on yeah. this whole situation, which is that it really is a failure of democracy yes. that we have yes. Dianne Feinstein propped up, didn't have to debate, so people didn't really feel, you know, they weren't able to evaluate their choices whatsoever. She's still being propped up by Nancy Pelosi. I mean, I think this is utterly disgraceful. Like, Pelosi knows exactly what's going on with Feinstein, and I'm sure has known for quite some time exactly what's going on with Feinstein. But she's using her as a pawn in order to try to get her chosen successor, Adam Schiff, who's like one of the worst Democrats in Congress, into her Senate seat. And the backstory here, for those who haven't followed this, is Gavin Newsom has said if Dianne Feinstein were to re retire and there was a Senate opening, he would appoint a black woman into that seat. Yep. That black woman very likely to be Barbara Lee, who is running in the Senate primary against Adam Schiff and against, by the way, Katie Porter. So in order to forestall that from happening, Pelosi has tried to prop up Feinstein and keep her in place in spite of the fact that, I mean, this is an insane situation. She can't trust herself. She can't be trusted to handle her personal financial affairs, but she can cast votes on massive, like multi-trillion dollar Pentagon budgets and the like. This is pure insanity. And it's not an accident that the fact that we have this incredibly aged Senate, like historically, historically old by, by our country's standards, comes at a time when you have a total democratic breakdown in terms of people being able to evaluate their choices, in terms of the influence of big money in politics, in terms of this isn't relevant to the Senate, but relevant to the House, in terms of gerrymandering and all of these other pieces that have conspired to keep power out of the hands of the people. That's how you end up with someone like this in such a position of incredible power when, you know, if you poll Californians, if you poll certainly poll the nation, this is not what they want to see uh, in terms of their representation. It's not right. Um, it's just not right in any sense of the word. You got somebody here who is clearly, you know, and this is, we've also talked about this. 
At this point, she is probably so far gone that it's not really on her as much as it once was. Although I do still think she has a titanic ego for hanging on at least getting to this point. It is now an indictment of all the people around her, of her 66-year-old daughter, of her you know, staff who was around her, Miss Just Vote I, of all the senators who are covering this up on her behalf, of Governor Newsom, and of all these people. I mean, Ro Khanna, to his credit, is basically the only guy, an elected member of the Democratic Party, who's like, I'm sorry, you got to go. All right. Like this, this, we, we, we thank you for your service, but like, you got to walk here. It's not fair to your constituents. And I've, I've laid it out here before, you know, because senior senators like this are immensely powerful people. If they want to be, mm -hmm. you can work on behalf of your constituents. There are 40 million people who effectively have no real advocate. And everyone's like, oh, but her office can handle it. Sorry, I know how it works. Senators are on the phone all the time. California-based company gets needs a trade exemption or something like that. They employ, let's say, 100,000 people or whatever in the state. They've basically got to go to Padilla, who is a, he's a junior guy. He has no senator. He's no seniority. Yeah. They don't have the adequate representation that they deserve in my opinion, any every uh, American citizen deserves that to have somebody fighting on their behalf as an elected representative. So I think that that to me is what really bothers me. And like you said, this is all around so that you don't want, what is it, you don't want a progressive to be right. in the Senate. Yes. Like, let, like, let's be honest here. She that, wants that's her why. Toady, who is like also a stooge of the deep state and was like the worst Russian, Russia gator in this Crazy. whole town, has to be him. Can be Barbara Lee, can be Katie Porter. Right. Has to be him. It is crazy. It is absolutely crazy. And, you know, the American people, the voters in California, they didn't vote for Pelosi's staffers to represent them. Right. I mean, sorry, you're not right. Pelosi, Feinstein's staffers right. to represent them. They voted because they thought they, you know, it was basically hidden from them, the reality of the situation. And now they're having very much buyer's remorse, but don't have an opportunity to do anything different. Sure. Can the office run on autopilot? Absolutely. Is this anything approaching representative democracy? Absolutely not. And when you pair it with, you know, the troubles that Mitch McConnell is having mm -hmm. and the overall age of the Senate, it is a really sad state of affairs and a sign of a decaying empire that we live in here. Well, absolutely. Absolutely right. Okay, let's go to the next part here. Uh, a really crazy story that happened and unfolded all throughout yesterday. Uh, the FBI shot and killed a man in a raid in connection with threats against President Biden while President Biden is in the West and traveling. This incident occurred in Provo, Utah. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. Craig Robertson uh, was shot and killed during this FBI raid that happened on early Wednesday morning as part of th uh, investigating threats against President Biden that were made on social media. This was made by, done by the FBI um, in Salt Lake City and the office that they have based out of there. Uh, they said, quote, in accordance with FBI policy, the shooting incident is now under review. As it's an ongoing matter, we have no further details uh, to provide. He was facing actually three counts, according to the complaint, interstate threats, threats against the president of the United States, and influencing, impeding, and retaliating against federal law enforcement by threat. Some of the social media uh, posts here by Mr. Robertson are particularly troubling. Let's go and put the next one uh, up here on the screen. You can actually just see 
um, some evidence. I mean, look, uh, it's not illegal to have guns, but he was posting them um, in a manner, he says, quote, when this government crumbles under its own evil and corruption, food, water, and arms and ammunition will be necessary to survive. Nine words you don't want to hear from government, and we are here to help. Photos of himself um, in full body armor. The actual thing, though, and we're not really, we don't think we're able to show these to you, but they are the actual threats, uh, Crystal, that he made on Facebook. The threats themselves uh, were pretty troubling because they included really not only threats against President Biden, but also like, hey, FBI, are you listening? If you are, let me know so I can have a gun or weapons like ready to meet you. But you know, we do still have a lot of questions around this incident. It's like, this is an early morning raid. It's kind of an older man. I mean, uh, was he expecting said, you know, raid? Like, what are the details here as to why, like, this ended up resulting in a death? And, of course, this also happened while the president is traveling abroad. Like, what exactly was going on here? So, yeah, I mean, it, it's just a sad situation right now. He's you know, an elderly gentleman. I mean, you know, I'm not defending the guy. Like, he's posting openly right. on Facebook being like, I want to kill the president, um, and then posting, uh, you know, things with, like, his guns and, and body armor and all of that. But we still have to do some scrutiny here on the official side of the story. Like, how did this all go down? Uh, was this even necessary? You know, what exactly was the search warrant? Like, being, was he being arrested? Like, right. what are the, what's the circumstances here of this, what's going on here? Yeah, and yeah. did he, I mean- Was he holding a gun to shoot at you? <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like... Was it justified <laughs> yeah. that, I mean, yeah, don't make threats against the president. The threats that were made were very specific. He said, right. I heard Biden is coming to Utah, which is where this man lived yes. in Provo, Utah, digging out my old ghillie suit and cleaning the dust off the M24 sniper rifle. And there were other threats that were very similar and I think the reason that, you know, they ended up uh, trying to uh, apprehend him in this raid was because usually for a threat to be credible, there has to be some specificity to it. So the fact that Biden was coming to Utah and he's talking specifically about, you know, threatening him in the state of Utah is probably what led them to take this action. But yeah, uh, a, an FBI raid for threats is one thing, but uh, there's no indication thus far. They haven't indicated that anyone who was involved in the raid was mm -hmm. injured. Um, he had posted some threats to the effect of like, oh, if the FBI shows up on my guns loaded, is that what happened? There are just still a lot of questions about how this all went down and the circumstances that led to this man who should not have been making threats against the president, but um, this man ending up dead. Yeah, that's the odd thing about it is, uh, I mean, and, and I again, I want to be clear here. He was posting some pretty crazy stuff. Like, here, let me read you one. Alvin Bragg, I'm headed to New York to fulfill my dream of eradicating another George Soros two-bit political hack spelled wrong, DAs. I am be waiting in the courthouse parking garage with my suppressed Smith & Wesson MP 9mm to smoke a radical fool prosecutor that should never have been elected. I want to stand over Bragg and put a hole in his forehead with my 9mm and watch him twitch as a drop of blood oozes from the hole as his life ebbs away to hell. Bye-bye to another corrupt... I don't even know what the word is. Robertson wrote in one social media post. Yeah. All right. So like, let's be real about who we're talking about. But, you know, 
he's an American citizen. Uh, now, you're not allowed to issue threats against the president, or at the very least, like, you will come under investigation for that. I do think that's, I think that's within the bounds of the First Amendment and also within the bounds of protecting public officials. I mean, look, I don't know if you saw this. There was a presidential candidate just yesterday assassinated in cold blood yeah. in Ecuador. Yeah. Horrible video. So it's like, you know, these are very real incidents that we should always be reminded um, can happen. It does come back to, though, it's like, okay, I mean, did, did he break the law? I mean, lawful firearm owner, it's Utah, uh, posting stuff is not necessarily illegal. It's like, so did you come in? Like, were weapons drawn? Do you have body camera footage? You know, these are all important things, I think, that they're going to have to uh, come forward on. And, and honestly, the media is going to have to demand this. So we're going to have to start, we have to issue some FOIA requests. Like, we got to make sure yeah. you actually get to the bottom of this. Like, is this all, you know, by the book? Etc. as despicable as some of these statements are. Yeah, I mean, it appears to me that he probably broke the law. Did he yeah. um, deserve to die for his uh, threats oh, against yeah. the president? Right. You know, again, there are a lot of questions that we had. It could be that, you know, these agents felt truly acted in self-defense, that he did come, as he indicated in some of his posts, with his weapons uh, blazing. But, you know, the fact that there's been a, a real silence on the side of the government here, mm -hmm. uh, you know, only further heightens the questions that we have about this incident and exactly how it all went down. So, yeah, it's one to, to, you know, keep our eye on and see if we get any further information about exactly the circumstances here of how this all unfolded. Yes, that's exactly right. Okay, so we've got a little bit of Trump legal news here for you. Apparently, Jack Smith's team obtained a search warrant uh, to search his Twitter account. Let's put this up on the screen. This is pretty wild development. Yeah. Headline here from the AP, special counsel got a search warrant for Twitter to turn over info on Trump's account, according to documents. Um, there was also a fine that was levied. Put this next piece up on the screen. $350,000 fine that was levied against um, now X. I really am sort of like resistant to using that uh, company name because it's irritating to me. I'm but not anyway, yeah, <laughs> $350,000 fine against Twitter for missing the deadline to comply with this uh, search warrant. Details were included in a ruling from the Federal Appeals Court in Washington over a legal battle surrounding the warrant that has played out under seal and behind closed doors for months. The appeals court rejected Twitter's claim that it should not have been held in contempt or sanctioned. So looks like in the same way that, you know, they get search warrants to look in someone's house or whatever, um, they obtained a search warrant to have access to Trump's Twitter account. I presume that means DMs and all the rest to try to find out anything that was relevant with regard to his actions with regards to January 6th and anything else that they're investigating. Because that's the other thing, Sagar, is uh, we have word now that the grand jury that has been meeting in DC that handed down these latest indictments of Trump over January 6th, they're still meeting. Um, and the investigation there still continues. So it's possible there are additional indictments, certainly of his co-conspirators. It's also possible there are additional indictments with regards to Trump. And specifically, some of the reporting indicates they're still looking into some of his fundraising practices. And we've, of course, covered here the way that they, you know, at best really misled people about what their money was going to with regard to the, uh, the Stop the Steal efforts, right. et cetera. So, you know, this is very much an ongoing investigation. Yeah. Let me tell you something. Uh, of all of the investigations, that's the one I would actually like to see because the it fundraising me one. insane. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, I understand First Amendment law. 
fundraising and all that. But watching old people who really believe this stuff get milked out of their hard-earned Social Security and savings money, you know, to go, quote-unquote, fight on behalf of the president, who then spends it on a bunch of legal bills not related to that, that really pisses me off. You know, I don't care what—look, it's their money. They can do what they want. Uh, but, you know, I, I, it doesn't sit right with me, especially knowing how so many of these people not only trust him, but just trust so many of the media apparatus yeah. that kind of amplifies this stuff. But I am curious. I did not fully understand— why the Twitter account needed to have a search warrant. Mm -hmm. That was the only thing I keep coming back to because I'm like, it's all public record. Are you looking for like behind the scenes, like logins, like as into like who posted the tweets? Are we looking at his <laughs> direct messages? Well, it could be his, D I mean, I just assumed it's the DM. So I was wondering that, but you know, from my limited interaction uh, and knowledge of how the presidential Twitter account, he did not really used to reply to DMs. I'm not even sure he fully even knew how to do it. <laughs> I also, I mean, I can tell you, I can't go into all the details, but I have actually watched some of these presidential tweets get drafted uh, while I was interviewing Trump, yeah. funnily enough. And uh, he doesn't post them. Let me just put it that way. Uh, some of it even includes paper in terms of editing things <laughs> before they are then sent out. Yeah. So I, I, I just didn't understand, like, what are we trying to gleam here yeah. from said Twitter account? I'm a account. little confused by it, the, too. The timestamps are public, you know? Right. It's like, what are we looking for? Yeah, well, yeah. and we don't have any public indication that he did go back and forth with people right. on DMs. That's, I mean, that doesn't mean that right. it's impossible that there's nothing there, but I'm, I'm not sure what they were looking for here either. And then... There's also a question about, you know, is it appropriate for the government to be um, issuing search warrants and, you know, being able to look at people's social media accounts? I mean, I would say in the same way that you can get a search warrant to search someone's house or their documents mm -hmm. or whatever, like there are situations where I do think it is appropriate. The problem comes when these search warrants become just like rubber stamps yes. for whatever the government wants for whatever reason without a lot of scrutiny as to whether or not this is actually required. Does this meet the standard? It's hard for me to say at this point. I, I have no idea. You know, I mean, in terms of that, I I do think there should be a special consideration here, and we are talking about the president of the United States, we are or a former president of the United States, and, and who actively only used his Twitter. You know, this is an important consideration. He only used his Twitter account while he was actually president of the United States. Hasn't he used it really since then, um, and has since been on Truth Social? What exactly, you know, were prosecutors looking for here? There's also the interesting angle here about the fine that Twitter uh, was forced to pay, which you know, let's go and put this up there, please, on the screen, which says that uh, the judge levied a $350,000 fine on the company for a delay, actually in complying so you know not clear yet exactly like why the fine was levied what exactly the delay was it also kind of comes back to a recent promise by elon musk that they're going to cover the legal expenses of anyone who incurred a firing or a problem from you know their twitter account like I, i'm assuming he means like normal people who were canceled because of tweets, but immediately Donald Trump Jr. was like, hey, I've got a pretty big case for you, you know, if you want to go ahead and cover those legal bills. So it uh, is an interesting like legal fight and or machination. I mean, the biggest headline from it really is just that it happened at all. Not even like we don't know what they're looking for. We don't know yeah. why and all that. Just the fact that it happened itself is, you know, really enough in order, I think, to talk about and speculate as to why. Trump has responded, of course. He says, just found out that crooked Joe Biden's DOJ secretly attacked my Twitter account, making a point not to let me know about this major hit on my civil rights. My political opponent is going crazy trying to infringe 
on my campaign for president. So he is certainly seizing on that. And he's referring to the fact that prosecutors actually were able to receive permission from the judge not to tell Trump for months that his uh, account had been taken over, basically. It was being searched by the government. So they kept it secret from him. They argued that it would seriously jeopardize the ongoing investigation by giving him an opportunity to destroy evidence, change patterns of behavior, or notify Confederates. That was the justification for keeping this action secret from Trump. So that is about everything we know about that one. All right. So that's what we got. Uh, at the same time, we have some news this morning about the rapidly approaching first Republican primary debate. It has appeared thus far like Trump is probably not going to participate in that debate. Um, this is very, you know, I mean, listen, I think it would be good for him to participate. I think it's in the interest of democracy for all of these candidates to have to participate in debates. That includes Donald Trump. That includes Joe Biden. But he and his advisors sort of feel like, oh, he's way ahead. Why take the risk? Why dignify these other opponents by stepping on the stage? The folks at Fox and Friends were uh, on their airwaves trying to implore Trump to reconsider what appears to be his movement in the direction of skipping the debate. Let's take a listen to what they had to say. The crowd was mixed on whether he should can, uh, uh -huh. debate or not. Right. People uh -huh. want to see Trump debate. Number one, it's extremely entertaining and it's good. And what I did recently is watch back the debate with Joe Biden, where I thought he didn't do well. The more I realized he actually did well, much better than uh, than you would think. Right. But the moderator kept interrupting, number one. And number two is Joe Biden just kept lying. Well, I think if, if Donald Trump is polling the audience saying, hey, do you think I should do that debate? Because he was very clear. He was emphatic. Nope, I'm not going to do it because I'm way ahead. And we have heard him say that, you know, my advisors are telling me I shouldn't do it. Obviously, he's having second doubts about the advice he's getting from his advisors. Because if he's polling the audience and... I just don't see, okay, the debate's in two weeks here on Fox. I just don't see Donald Trump sitting at home watching along with 40 or 50 million other Americans when he sees Ron DeSantis in that center square. That would absolutely drive him crazy. Well, and, and don't you want him to do it? Because yeah, look, of I know course. he's angry at everything that, the, that he feels the, this administration or the Democrats, the DOJ, have put him through. But don't take it out on the Republicans, because Republicans want to see him up on stage. And don't take the voters for granted. Yes, right. he is ahead by a lot. But to see him up there on the stage would just be wonderful, because we want to see how they interact. We want to hear their policies. That's how he became Donald Absolutely. Trump the first time. He, he made it entertaining. He blew everybody away. At mm. <laughs> so, Fox News is hosting the debate, so obviously. Yeah, they I was going to say, they have pretty self-interested. I mean, going. they're right about not yeah. taking the voters for granted. Like, they, that, that's all fair. I The part that I actually thought was the funniest was when Kilmeade started doing revisionist yes. history on his first debate performance right. against Joe Biden, which everyone basically painted because horrible. he was so obnoxious. Yeah. I think that's the one, too, where it came out after the fact he, like, had COVID at the time. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if they had him hopped up on some kind of something to overcome the, uh, you know, his mood because of COVID. Anyway, he was so obnoxious. He didn't let Joe Biden get a word. He made Joe Biden so sympathetic when all you had to do was sort of, like, stand back yes. and let Joe Biden hang himself. But he really came off very great. So I found it amusing that Kilmeade was like, actually, I watched it. You did great, sir. Right. I'm sure you do great again. The public wants to hear from you, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's one of the biggest kiss-ass uh, things I've oh, ever amazing. seen. Just shocking. Yeah. I mean, and look, let's be real. As you said, this is purely self-interested. Don't forget, the day that Trump was indicted, actually, that night, he had dinner with Fox News executives who were at Mar-a-Lago to basically beg him to show up 
to the debate. We do, however, have some news that just broke last night. He, Trump gave an interview to Newsmax's Eric Bowling, where he said two things. He will let us know next week about the debate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Classic but two, I will not. Around it. Two, I will not. Uh, sign the RNC debate pledge. Well, the RNC pledge, which says that you will support the eventual nominee, is a precursor to participating in the debate. So I think we have a little bit of a taste. Uh, he also recently has been going after Chris Christie, calling him a fat pig, or no, sorry, sorry, he was told not to call him a fat pig, and he recounted that story. Uh, classic Trumpian. Uh, Christie posted the video and just said, come say it to my face, I'll see you at the debate. Yeah. You know, trying to challenge him. I, I don't. I don't think Trump's going to show up. I, I. I just think at this point, specifically because of Christie, Trump has it in his head that Christie ended Marco Rubio's campaign. Trump also doesn't want to basically validate all the other candidates by letting him take a shot. He's leading so far ahead in fundraising and the polls. And uh, I actually thought one of the funniest tweets, truths, I guess, that he put out is. I'll let them debate and see who I should pick as vice president. You know, just kind of putting himself above it. But of course, on a small d Democratic level, it's awful. You have to debate. Yeah. You, I mean, you really do have to. It's a terrible norm to set. It's one that we shouldn't normalize Biden and or Trump. If you want, if you if you earn it, you know, if you want it, then you got to earn it. Yeah. I, I really believe in that. But, you know, people are letting to go take it a pass. So I don't know. I'm uh, in the minority. Apparently. It's pathetic. That is very likely that the two major party yeah. nominees, neither one of them is going to have to face a single like debate question during the primary. Mm -hmm. They're going to be able Awful. to win without having being subjected to even like the baseline of Democratic scrutiny. And it is, a, you know, we talk a lot about norms. That is a new norm that would be set in the future. Every front runner is going to be like, ah, oh, they didn't. So I'm not going to do it either. And that that is. It, that is incredibly disappointing. It's an incredible degradation of democracy. And, you know, it's not a surprise that uh, these two men would be so craven. But nevertheless, um, it doesn't make the blow <laughs> land any softer. So, listen, I will say I could see him coming out next week and being like, yeah, I'll debate, but I'm not signing the pledge. And then basically kicking it to the RNC and making them make uh. the tough decision. So that way he has an excuse of it's not like, oh, I, I wanted to debate. They just right. wouldn't let me. You know, they wouldn't let me on the stage. Um, and so he sort of, you know, creates the own conditions where they have to block him um, or call his bluff or whatever. I don't know. I could see that also playing out potentially. That's smart. I actually think you're 100% right. You'd be like, I'm happy to do it, but I won't do that pledge. That's that's a very smart thing. You know, it is weird, though, that they include. I don't know if it's always been a part of it because, I mean, one of the most important moments of the first debate 2015 yeah. is when they were like well everybody here what did he say is like raise your hand if you commit to uh backing the eventual republican nominee and he didn't raise his hand and he's like no you know i'm not going to do it so this is clearly something that's kind of been baked in for a long time i do think it's definitely odd that he decided uh that they decided to add that in there at the same time i mean it's not i don't know do you think it's a smart move uh in on on behalf of the rnc because I mean, even if he doesn't commit, that's a fi it's fine enough. Like, let him debate anyways. I, I you know, think, let's I just get the guy Trump on the stage. Already blew up the stupid loyalty right. pledge because back in twenty six. No, I don't think that there should be a loyalty pet pledge. Mm. I think people should be able to run, and if right. they decide they don't like the nominee, they should be you know free individuals to make their own choices about it. Like handcuffing everybody ahead of time, I think is ridiculous. I think it is also anti democratic. Mm -hmm. um, and Trump blew this up last time around because what happened, Sagar, is they had this loyalty pledge because there was all this question of, oh, what will Trump do if he loses? Right. Like, is he going to run third party? What is he going to do? And he signed the pledge and then immediately was like, nah, I'm not really.
really going to follow this okay. thing. So then what's the point? Which is yeah. so that's what Chris Chris Christie has been saying because Christie has no intention of backing Trump yes. if Trump ends up being the nominee. So what he's been saying when he's asked about the loyalty pledge is. I will take the loyalty pledge exactly as seriously as Donald Trump did last time around. Mm -hmm. So he's technically signing it, but basically throwing out there like, yeah, I think this is garbage and I'm not really going to abide by it in the same way that Trump got away with not abide abiding by it last time. So, yeah, I think the loyalty pledge is BS. All right. Well, so, we'll see what happens. Yeah. We certainly will. As Trump used to say, we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. Crystal, what are you taking a look at? Well, when you think of Los Angeles, many things may come to mind. Sunshine, movie stars, Hollywood are on the more negative side, visible homelessness, street crime. But this year, LA has been ground zero for something quite surprising, a working class revolt. In the latest example, 11,000 city workers actually went on strike on Tuesday of this week, bringing some city services to a complete halt, slowing others, We're talking about lifeguards, sanitation workers, custodians, mechanics, groundskeepers, and more, all walked out over low wages and understaffing. As one airport custodian told the LA Times in rather succinct fashion, it's more work for less money. But these LA workers are far from alone. Their brothers and sisters across the city and across industries have been revolting in an extraordinary year that has seen more nationwide strike activity than almost any other year this century. Nurses, dock workers, hotel workers, they have all staged strikes or work stoppages. They are now joined by the workers at the heart of this company town, the writers and actors who make our favorite shows and movies, and the ones who are just struggling to get their foot in the door of their own Hollywood dream. They are all out on strike demanding a stake in the future of their industry. There is no city in America facing anywhere close to this level of worker rebellion. Partly, it's because LA actually has decent union density, so workers are already organized for collective action. But if you listen to what the workers are telling reporters about why they had no choice but to strike, there is a common thread running through each of these actions, and that common thread is housing. The total unaffordability of housing in the LA area has made it impossible for workers to be able to get by on their wages. It's immiserated them with multi-hour commutes, pushed them in some instances into literal homelessness. Joe Martinez, a city worker on strike this week who works servicing construction equipment at LAX, he told the LA Times that he lives 90 minutes away from his job because it is the closest place that he can possibly afford. And yet, he actually considers himself lucky because a lot of his fellow workers, they have even longer commutes. This, of course, takes them away from their family, their communities, drains their wallets and their souls, by the way, as they sit in mind-numbing traffic. According to Martinez, quote, we want to get respect from the city to go back to the bargaining table. Our biggest thing is cost of living. In a report on the hotel workers' strike, Alex Press documents how automated management apps are being weaponized to bring in unwitting scabs in an attempt to break that hotel workers' strike. One of those who was summoned by app to break the strike was a man named Thomas Bradley. He immediately dropped his shift and joined the picket line the moment he realized he was being used like a pawn to try to hurt other workers. Joining the striking workers was no small thing for Bradley either, who had struggled to find employment in the hospitality industry in spite of him being trained and credentialed for the work. It's a complaint that's shared by many black workers who are trying to get a foothold in the hotel industry. Bradley's joblessness had pushed him from precarity into actual homelessness. And when he showed up for that shift, 
He was living out of his car. Unite Here Local 11 co-president Ada Brasenio explained that this precarity is shared even by many of her members who do have a job. Quote, there's no thing that I'm hearing from my workers. They are share. There's a new thing that I'm hearing from my workers. They are sharing by shift rooms in a house. If you work in the PM, you get to sleep there in the AM. And if you work in the AM, you get to sleep in the PM. They actually rent a room by shift. It is incredible that we are in this crisis in this country. The union has now since helped Bradley get a job as a banquet runner at the one hotel which was able to come to terms before the contract deadline. The housing crisis has also taken center stage in the Hollywood shutdown as well. An anonymous studio executive said the quiet part out loud when he told reporters that he and his fellow execs wanted to weaponize this housing affordability crisis to force writers to accept a bad deal. The end game is to allow things to drag on until union members start losing their apartments and losing their houses, a studio executive told Deadline. Acknowledging the cold-as-ice approach, several other sources reiterated the statement. One insider called it a cruel but necessary evil. Now, L.A. is at or near the top of every list that I looked at of the least affordable cities in the country. This, of course, is thanks to a combination of astronomical housing prices and comparatively low wages. When you add the sprawl, traffic congestion, and poor public transit, you can easily understand why the entire workforce is at its wit's end. L.A. is also among the worst cities in the country for income inequality, as superstars and executives live lives of incredible luxury. And the workers who make the whole place go commute four hours just to barely scrape by. Could also, guys, be a canary in the coal mine. It's not like the rest of the country is doing so great on housing prices. Nearly two-thirds of major metros just saw their housing prices hit record highs. Meanwhile, mortgage rates are at a near 23-year high as the Fed has pushed interest rates up at breakneck speed. These two factors together, housing prices and mortgage rates, have made housing the least affordable that it has ever been. And while the news has somewhat improved in recent months, it is not like wages have come anywhere close to keeping up with these ever-escalating housing prices. In other words, don't be surprised if the LA workers' revolt is coming to a city near you. And so I was reading all these stories, and I was thinking, what is the connective tissue here? And if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. All right, Sagar, what are you looking at? Well, two announcements on Tuesday evening absolutely rocked the sports entertainment world. One, Penn Gaming is partnering up with Disney sports juggernaut ESPN to launch an ESPN betting app pushing the Disney property fully into the world of online gambling. But two, Penn Gaming is divesting entirely its ownership of Barstool Sports into the hands of Dave Portnoy, making him the sole owner of the company. Both announcements in their own right are titanic. Together, they tell us a lot about the state of the media business today and what the future looks like. Let's start with Barstool, a brand that I've always loved and continue to admire. Portnoy revealed some other reason for why Penn has decided to part ways with Barstool. Let's take a listen to that interview. Uh, we did this deal about three years ago, and I think both parties are like, we're going to take this thing to the moon. And we underestimated just how tough it is for myself and Barstool to operate in a regulated world where gambling regulators, the New York Times, Business Insider hit pieces, fucking with the stock price. Every time we did something, it was one step forward, two steps back. We got denied licenses because of me, you name it. So the regulated industry, probably not the best place for Barstool Sports and the type of content we make. 
Okay, so basically Barstool's controversy, aka the reason why it is popular, is the reason that Penn Gaming had to divest itself from Barstool. And to be clear, when I say divest, I really mean it, not a sale. The details of the transaction released so far indicate Portnoy did not have to pay more than $1 to get his brand back after being paid some $500 million three years for the brand previously. In fact, the only stipulations are some non-compete elements to the future of the brand, and that if he should sell it in the future, they would get some of the proceeds. He quickly put that to rest, saying he would never sell it, should he, even should he die. He will just get the brand over to one of his trusted associates. There is a whole other monologue to give about what an incredible deal that is to make, but I want to focus on the actual substance of it. What we're really learning here is a profound lesson in freedom and what it takes to be a good media company in 2023. Barstool was a liability to Penn Gaming because of the controversy it generated. Thus, the contrary was used as evidence for why gambling licenses and other regulatory hurdles for the company couldn't be cleared and was worth nearly half a billion dollar loss just to rid themselves of the problem. And as I immediately reacted to the Portnoy comments, any truly free media brand cannot be connected to a larger entity. It must have a funding model immune from attack. And while I think Barstool may miss out on some sweet gambling revenue, I believe that this move will actually make them bigger than ever before. The most valuable commodity in the public sphere in 2023 is to be able to speak your mind. It's why Barstool is as popular as it is today. The more popular it gets, the more it represents millions of people, mostly men, who despise political correctness. And the more of a vector of attack, then, it will be for the mainstream. I believe with no connection to the outside, save for their advertising business, they will likely be bigger than ever before. But there's actually a second part of the announcement that we haven't gotten to yet, which also relates to a monologue I've done previously. While Penn Gaming did divest itself from Barstool, they announced their new partnership with ESPN. Now, per the deal, Penn Gaming is going to pay some $1.5 to $2 billion to ESPN, who will then promote the new ESP betting app across all of its franchise. This is welcome news for ESPN, which once was the king of cable bundle, but now is openly being floated as an area for strategic partnership of Bob Iger as they lose the fundamental value that the brand once commanded within media. Immediately, however, I had a different view, perhaps than others, because one of another favorite broadcasters in the independent sports world, Pat McAfee, he recently signed a deal with ESPN. As I covered at that time, McAfee's show is going to be simulcast on the ESPN channel as well as on ESPN's YouTube channel. And at the time, I actually hailed it as a victory for McAfee and for YouTube to be able to get a licensing deal where content is not exclusive to the channel itself. But I, of course, flagged one big concern. One of the reasons that people love McAfee and the boys is that they speak their mind. Now, as you saw during the Brett Favre situation when he literally got sued for libel, he just brushed it off. McAfee promised when he announced he was going to ESPN, he would continue to keep it real, and let's recall that promise. Nothing would change except that they were going to say the F word less. <laughs> Here's the issue, however. Think about the sequence of events that we just went through. Penn Gaming divested Barstool for being too controversial and then signed with ESPN. McAfee's now part of the ESPN umbrella for the foreseeable future for a colossal sum of money. But can he really continue to keep it real? Obviously, time is going to tell, but it certainly doesn't bode well for that promise, regardless of what I believe are his very good intentions. It reveals the exact reason why this show is independent, because we had to learn the hard way. Corporate control, what it looks like, how enemies won't target you, they'll just go after the larger entity, and they try to that employs you to try and compel your behavior. In no way am I saying he's a sellout or that he will curtail his future comments. Only just, it's a Gordian knot of problems that Barstool was specifically consumed by, and it ultimately led to it have to going independent. 
Ultimately, I believe the sequence of events truly defines what the future of all entertainment will look like. Those who are attached to larger brands and regulated industries will always have to toe at least somewhat the establishment line. They will be sanitized involuntarily, but they get paid big bucks for sanitization. Then, swashbucklers will remain on the outside, kind of scooping up millions of people who want that authenticity. And then the crossroad will always come when someone comes along and they want to co-op that audience in exchange for a lot of money. What we've learned from the Barstool deal and its eventual collapse is if you want to be truly free and to speak your mind, it's probably a bad trade to take the money in the long run. I'm curious what you think of all this, Crystal. Oh, yeah. Kind of wild, right? So you got basically... And if you want to hear my reaction to Sagar's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at BreakingPoints.com. Accusations are flying as journalist Ken Klippenstein has published a new report for The Intercept saying UFO whistleblower Dave Grush, who recently testified before the House Oversight Committee, was at one point referred to a mental health institution following two 911 calls from his wife in what Grush says is a PTSD-related alcoholic incident. Grush and his associates initially accused the intelligence community of leaking non-public health records to Klippenstein, who has since revealed he in fact retained access to this information by Freedom of Information Act requests. Resulting dramas got both sides. They're accusing the other of not telling the truth to the public about the situation. So we've got Ken Klippesee himself in the studio now. Join us defending his story. It's good to see you, Ken. Thanks hey. for joining us. Thanks for coming in, Ken. Great to be back with you guys. All right, Ken. So uh, let's get into the nitty-gritty, I guess, of the story itself. Uh, let's start broad strokes. What is the story about? What is it? Well, so he's kind of the star witness of the um, you know subcommittee that's looking at the um, UFO allegations. Not just him, but there are two uh, pilots as well. And so in the reporting on it, I noticed a phrase popping up again and again, a decorated war hero, a decorated mm -hmm. war hero, a decorated war hero. And I'm not disputing that he is, mm -hmm. but when I hear that, it's kind of like, okay, well, where's the, where's the critique? Like, where's mm -hmm. the negative side or where's the, like, vetting? And I didn't see any of that by any of the media, so I thought, well, I'm going to go and look and see what I can find. And so I know people both in DOD, in the intelligence community, and I did a call for tips to try to broaden yes. the picture. It really just came from a mosaic of different sources that gave me ideas of what was going on. We can talk about that more, but um, really my motive was just, it didn't feel like anybody was vetting this guy. Mm. So um, lay out the, the specifics of the story and what you found through your FOIA request. So under the Virginia Freedom of Information Act, um, you can request police records. They're called call detail records, CADs, obscure things that aren't kind of like the typical police report that journalists tend to ask for. And maybe that's how they didn't know it existed. I have some practice with <laughs> FOIA. Mm -hmm. I've been doing this a long time. So when I got these back, um, it was uh, two different incidents reported by his wife and previous wife um, in which uh, he had gone, in the second case that was in 2018, I think, he had gone into a, uh, it's described as like an angry, drunken rage where he was um, suicidal, asked his wife to kill him. She uh, called police, said that uh, the guns were locked up, and then he was um, placed in a mental facility where after, after he was um, assessed um, and then released, I think, a, a day later. Got it. And this happened 2014, 2018? Both, yeah. Okay. So there's been a lot of back and forth. Uh, Grush accused you of getting these things leaked by the intelligence community. You revealed it came from the Freedom of Information Act. You did a Twitter space last night. You indicated you were tipped off by this. So were you tipped off by members of the intelligence community? It was both the Defense Department. I mean, again, it's a mosaic. You okay. talk to as many people as you can because you don't want to be dependent on any one individual who might have a grudge or whatever uh -huh. it is. But yes, I did talk to both DOD people and intelligence so people. So in terms of the substance of the tip here, the accusation, I mean, aren't they fundamentally correct that like you are publishing dirt that was tipped to you by 
intelligence community? Um, well, the thing is, when I put out my call for tips, I said, if you have anything positive or negative, sure. because at the end of the day, like, I don't want to, you know, he's a human being. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't, to be candid with you guys so people can account for where I'm coming from, I don't believe in the UFO stuff. I think yeah. he's incorrect about it. However, I don't want to just punch at him. I would have included anything positive that I had gotten. Unfortunately, I didn't get anything. Got now, it. that doesn't mean that he doesn't have, you know, redeeming qualities. Everybody does, even me. Uh, so, uh, but I just didn't happen to hear any of that. And so I had to go with what, you know, I was told. And uh, to give you guys a sense too, I'll, I can speak to the characteristics of the sources because I understand why people are concerned about that because mm -hmm. most of the reporting that you read is planted. When you go to the New York Times, most of those stories are planted by committee chairs, by the White House, whatever it is. That's not how I roll. I know I tend to talk to mid-level people. Mm -hmm. People kind of like Grush, GS-14s, GS-15s, people who are experienced but didn't quite have the political chops generally to make it to the top. So those are the types of people that I was talking to. Just full disclosure, if you want to ask anything else about sourcing, I'm happy to sure. talk about yeah, that. Yeah, so I mean, basically you're being accused of like, this is a smear job. You're trying to undermine his credibility. What did you see as the value of this information? Do you think that the fact that he has a PTSD diagnosis makes him more likely to lie, make things up and less credible in general? No, absolutely not PTSD. Um, but, you know, in the police reports, his wife called him an alcoholic and said that this happened repeatedly. Mm. That, I think, is a concern. I think that if someone's an alcoholic, yeah, that should be factored into your assessment of what their credibility is. But if Right, but if it's alcohol-related to PTSD, I mean, let's be serious. I mean, he in sworn testimony. He admits he had a problem with PTSD. He says it was, I mean, I'm assuming he's related to these alcoholic incidents. He got treatment, per your own reporting. Um, and all of the incidents he's now testified to, sworn testimony as well as a whistleblower's post Treatment. So I, I, I'm just trying to understand, like, what is the value of this information being put forward? And to be clear, you didn't do anything wrong. You're doing your job. We get crazy tips from people all the time here. Um, so I have no issue with the Freedom of Information Act, even if you did report it, even if you did get a tip from the intel community. I guess it comes down to, like, the framing and the substance of, like, what are we supposed to do with this information? Well, I included in this story uh, an yeah. example of the dozens of White House um, staffers who had their clearances revoked for smoking weed, including in 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 um, states where it was legal, right? Places where it's legal. So, like this is part of the clearance process. Uh, and so, again, this whole focus on PTSD it, and if it makes him not credible, that was never something I said. That mm -hmm. was a focus that he made, trying to get ahead of the story in the statement that he put out. My interest was always the alcoholism, and I mean, I guess just to I I feel as though there's some kind of grandstanding around this stuff because the reality is if you're gonna say, get a medical procedure, go see a surgeon, you find out he's an alcoholic, that's probably gonna factor in your deciding somewhat, right? Right. Uh, well, I mean, is he an active alcoholic? Do you know that? We know that well, from the reports his wife said he was. Okay, in 2018. Yes. But we don't know anything since then. No. Right. So can, can you speak a little bit too, because part of the piece you talk about how, you know, in those instances you had White House staffers fired, that there is this, you know, very onerous procedure to get and maintain your security clearances. In this instance, you know, they, they knew about these um, police interactions and what had happened with regard to his, uh, his wife at the time. They knew about the allegations of um, alcohol abuse, all of this stuff, and yet he was able to maintain his clearances. Do you read something nefarious into that, or is that an indication in his direction that, listen, they knew everything and they still thought that I was trustworthy enough to maintain these very high-level secret clearances? That's what he said, and I think there's something to that, but there's also something of a um, boys' club. I don't mean in a, in a gender way. I mean in mm. like a senior-level people tend to look out for each other. I quoted someone as saying that, and that was the general frustration of multiple people that I talked to was feeling like they described this guy as unreliable and they were frustrated that this stuff that they knew about w was not 
being accounted for in these descriptions. They were seeing the descriptions I was describing before. Decorated hero, decorated hero. Right. They didn't feel like that was the whole story. I guess what I'm confused by is you're telling me this, but you don't quote any of these people in the story. Everything, the only facts that you can really attest to in the story are FOIA, um, in turn, and obviously the tip. And again, zero issue with that. But don't you think that's the actual relevant part? I mean, why aren't you quoting people on background and people who work for him who said he's unreliable? You're, you're saying it here, I think that's fine. I mean, obviously sure. it's a public forum, but the way that it's being read, and I have to be honest with you, I respect your work, but you know, the assemblage of the facts here, it does kind of read as a smear job. You're basically like, he had a PTSD incident, or okay, he says it's a PTSD incident, he had two alcoholics, you quote two people who basically say, you know, he's, he's full of it. Um, you only quote one expert who says that the UFO hearing is a travesty. And I mean, one of the things I really don't understand is you, we've, we, how many conversations we had about Pentagon spinning us, but you're credulously citing the explanation, the 1990s explanation on Roswell and credulously quoting like Susan Goh, who's the Pentagon spokesperson who said that he's full of it. I mean, why should we believe these people? Do you understand what I'm saying? The assembly oh, totally. of the facts in your story yes. are taking his, like, this think, guy's a liar. That's I think saying. that's a good instinct. You yeah. don't want to side with the institutions, but I think yeah. you also don't want to reflexively oppose them. I'm not saying that you're yeah, doing yeah, that. Yeah. I think that, uh, right. you know, I have that tendency too. Um, but again, these are not monoliths. The mm -hmm. DOD, I'm not talking to the public affairs officer, I'm not talking to the senior executives. I generally try to go out and get a sense of like the mid-level kind of like rank and file people because I think they tend to tell a more honest story. You talk to the politicals and it's just ridiculous. I agree with you. I think you're you know doing I mean? the right thing. And right. you always, and I've always, you know, I've stood by no. a lot of your work, but I'm like, why aren't any of these people quoted then? Why right. aren't you quoting these people? Well, essentially, the reason yeah. that I did the FOIA was because they're kind of describing as unreliable. I'm thinking, well, do I want to just use this sort of innuendo, mm. can I try to substantiate it? And if you look at the FOIA request, you can FOIA my FOIA, or I think I posted it too. You did. I asked for yeah. a whole range of right. things. So this idea that I was being pointed at one specific event, that's just not true. People were describing things to me. Mm -hmm. it sounds like there's certain themes. I go on Nexus, which journalists have, and so you can find their home address. The home address was not furnished to me, and then you can just file a FOIA, and I did it for like seven years. And so that was what came back. So okay. there's no sort of, like, so I guess my answer to your question, I'm not trying to be evasive. Mm -hmm. Like, I did talk to intelligence and, and DOD people, but um, the way in which that influences the reporting is a little bit more subtle than I think the, the discourse gives credit to. It's not like they're pointing you at one specific event. They give you a sense, and then you use that right. to go and use other methods to try to substantiate. I don't want to belabor the point, but just so I'm clear in my head of kind of the timeline, you got the, you were seeing the coverage of this hearing. Yes. You took issue with the fact that, you know, a lot, he made extraordinary claims. Right. Right. And they're they're secondhand claims and he, he hasn't produced publicly any evidence outside of his own testimony, which was being backed up by his personal reputation and credibility. Right. You're frustrated by the fact that there doesn't seem to be a vet on the other side. And then you reach out to your sources or do yeah, they so I talk to so the guys to that help I, us understand the time? All of the above. So yeah. there are people that I know in DOD and in Air Force that I figure probably know this guy. So I started asking them. They're telling me he's unreliable. And I think, OK, well, how can I find more? Because people have bits and pieces, it's not really enough to run with. So then I do a call out for tips. And in the tweet, I said, if you have positive or negative, because I don't, to mm -hmm. the extent that I, there's always going to be a bias towards negative. Because I was, when I used to work at Target as a cashier, and I remember the suggestion box, and I thought, man, those have all got to be negative comments. There's not going to be a single sure. positive suggestion. So there, you know, yeah, just they're, read they're, our YouTube section. And all <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's, there's not going to be, you know, there's going to be that bias. But it's like, to the extent that I can, I'm trying to cast as wide of a net as I can to get different. So that's not just reflective of the circle that I have and the mm -hmm. friends that I have. And uh, the people that reached out, they told me largely similar, like in theme, stuff that the people that I knew were saying. Right. And I mean, I, I get, the problem, though, is like you're kind of saying, this is selection bias here. And uh, one of the things Grush has led is that he was retaliated against and is being actively retaliated against by the intel. And there's strong evidence for that. Right. And I, I okay. take him well, at his word for that. Yes. Uh, well, but how do you know that you're not part of that? 
that, that, right? That the people who are reaching out to you aren't basically like, yeah, I mean, look, they're basically violating their job by talking to you in the first place and pointing to you towards each direction. Let's be honest. I mean, he's correct. And then that this is probably made known to his authorities. They probably took a look at his file and they gave you a call whenever they saw your number. Nothing wrong with that. You did nothing wrong. They're the ones who are doing it. But I mean, do you not feel though, as if you're part of a little bit of a campaign here? No, that's a fair question. Again, that's why, that's why I try in my reporting to find them okay. as opposed to them like coming to me independently, you know? And yeah. uh, and again, these things are complicated. These are not monoliths. There's the senior executive class, there's appointees. Those guys are the demons that you really wanna watch out for. And so, I mean, the people that I talked to clearly didn't like him and they didn't believe him about the UFO stuff. And so mm-hmm. insofar as that is a motive, that's true. Sure. You know, I wanna be very frank about yeah, that. Right. But it's a little different than like a Biden administration appointee being like, this is embarrassing, we have to destroy this guy. It's mm. so, so the concerns are fair, but I just wanna point out that it's different. So do you think that he's lying? Do you think he was misled? Do you think that, you know, there's some sort of motive for him to, because, you know, with whistleblowers, this comes at great personal risk. Great, I'm sure this is right. not a fun experience for right. him. I'm sure it's not fun to have these things in, in the press and this type of, of personal scrutiny and some of the worst moments of his life dragged out in front of the public. Right. So what sort of a motive would he have for not being honest and direct with the public? Um, I mean, around these issues, it's probably just embarrassing. I don't necessarily even fault him for not being more forthcoming about it. I've blamed the but media. I'm talking for... about why would he come forward oh, with, with inaccurate claims right. to start with the sort of things that he testified to? What, well, so what would a, he stand to There's a range that? of claims he makes, and I think a lot of them are probably true. Where we depart is when he says that it's space aliens or that we've recovered. But, but the idea, I know from my sources, and I think parts of this are public, there is a UAV recovery, crash recovery mm-hmm. program. There is constantly retaliation against whistleblowers. I know that because I work with them and there's data on this. It happens when you report something to the inspector general, there's a target on your back. So I totally take him at his word on that. And his lawyer was a former inspector general of the IC, very respected person. I know people that know him. All I've heard was good things. So the whole retaliation thing, I assume that's true. They don't like people going to Congress and reporting things. No. Um, You know, again, where we depart is the specifics. I also think it's true that there is a UAV crash recovery program. I just think just because you don't know and can't recognize what the technology is, that doesn't necessarily mean it's sure. it's extraterrestrial. Right, but why don't you present evidence to that fact then? I mean, How you do don't you believe mean? It. Like, you say you don't believe him. I mean, listen, I don't know whether I believe him or not. I, I To me, it's just extraordinary whenever you're like, you're before Congress, you're telling this under sworn testimony. I'm like, okay, well, I want to hear it from the other guy. Sean Kirkpatrick says it's not true. To me, that's great. We got two people under sworn testimony. They say it's not true. Why don't you put forward a story then being like, yeah, he's wrong. You know, the people are lying. Or, you know, I mean, I used to do this for a living. You can quote these people and be like, Grush colleagues say he's a liar. Grush colleagues say that he's completely not true. I mean, this is this is where I just don't understand. Well, I'm in a difficult like, position because it's like, yeah. I don't want to, I mean, again, I disagree with them, but it's like, I don't want to, I want to rely on stuff that is really easy to substantiate. Like FOIA. Documents sure. and his wife too, yeah. current wife, mm-hmm. not just ex-wife. If I'm just going off of stuff that people don't like him said verbally, it's, it feels kind of like a smear, you know, mm. like kind of unfair. And so it's like, I get where you're coming from, but it's like, put yourself in my shoes. Like, how how would you navigate th- yeah. these kind of vague descriptions, you know? Yeah, I don't, I don't know, to be honest with you. Um, I guess the, so I'll come back to this. Sure. But on the alcoholism point, you keep talking about that. Yeah. I mean, so is it not a mental health issue then? Like, is it disqualifying in your mind? Uh, Being an alcoholic? I mean, he... First of all, we don't know if he's an alcoholic. Is why, right. you know, and who knows what people reco- say? He on says he's recovered from PTSD. He says he's recovered from PTSD. Yeah. His best friend killed himself, according to him. I know for a fact he served in Afghanistan. Um, you know, these are pretty traumatic events. Millions of veterans kind of suffer the same thing. 
So I mean, are you saying that's disqualifying for the entire story? Like that that's what I think a lot of people are upset about. Um yeah. I, I don't think it necessarily yeah. is disqualifying. I think it might be. I mean, that's mm. kind of why I put it out. Mm -hmm. People can look at it and decide what they think. I certainly don't want to have like it's crazy to have a blanket rule. Anyone who has a substance abuse issue should not be. That's clearly you're right. False. And look, this man is asking us to believe something. He's asking us to believe untorn testimony. And crucially, as you said, his reputation is what he said. It's a totally legit question. I'm more like, well, what are we supposed to believe here? And what's the implication? I mean, I, I you know, well, I just again, think it's more. I mean, people want to paint. Not saying you're doing this yeah. with this broad brush of it's false. It's and and, yeah. and there are specific components to his claim. There's specific right. parts to his claims. And and you know, his own lawyer, who I mentioned before. Um, that law firm that's representing him has said that the reporting around the contents of his disclosures has been inaccurate. Mm -hmm. and, and I've never seen a lawyer do that in, in relation to you know stuff about a client. And, and so I think there's clearly something that's a little bit off here and as to you know people disagree about what what those details might be, but it's a it's a spectrum of, of claims that he's making, you know okay. Um, last question from me, at least for you, Ken, is are you working on additional, are there additional reporting pieces you're fleshing out right now? What should we be expecting? Yes, I'm interested in um, industries interested in these kind of things because you talked about the Pentagon's interests, which uh, those are reasonable questions to ask, like what are Ken's, in, why are they telling him these things? Mm -hmm. But there's a whole nother interest group, which is aerospace, which has its own uh, set of interests in uh, making the public think certain things about um, not just UFOs, but um, aerospace phenomena in general. And so my hope is that that can, and a lot of these representatives in Congress that staff the committees get money from from these aerospace right. firms. So are you saying that this is like a PSYOP by the defense contractors? I'm just trying to be clear no. what you're out. I, I mean, so Crystal asked me before, yeah. if I had to guess, I bet he believes it. I bet it's sincere. Yeah. I, people tend to believe what they're saying. They okay. tend to, yeah, I, don't I think agree. He's, and, um, and, you know, I mean, he it's not untrue. He was a decorated war hero. Right. Um, that's not, you know, so I I assume I assume he believes what he's saying. I'm not someone. I hate this word grifter. People throw mm -hmm. this word around so loosely. You know, and it's like how do you know someone's heart? Mm -hmm. You can't. No, right? you can't. So, I think it's fine to present the facts. I, like I said, I mean, I'm just reading this story, and you're like, you only quote two people: Jack Murphy and then this other guy. Uh, you're citing Roswell credulously. No offense, but like that's crazy. That's like citing the JFK record uh, and saying that that's the definitive norm here. I mean, when I'm reading this, all I'm supposed to take away is like, all right, you know, alcoholic, PTSD, guys got mental health, two experts. You didn't present the other side. So do you see why people took an issue with it? I understand. Yeah. I mean, to some extent, I'm in a position where it's like yeah. everyone is doing the decorated war here, all this stuff. And it's kind of like, well, now my job is I have to try to give people stuff they haven't gotten. Okay. That, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm just trying to be totally candid. You can, talking. Maybe that's yeah. bad, but that's, right. I'm just trying to give you an insight in my thought process of what okay. it is. Well, I think people can take away from this what they will. And at the very least, I think it helped me understand kind of where you're coming from. A lot of other people, like I said, have questions. People watch this show. And uh, I appreciate coming on. I know it's not the easiest thing to take questions like this. So thank you. We appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. Thanks, Thanks Ken. Ken. Good to see you. We'll see you guys later. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. 
Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Jamaica and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com.